Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people, pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. So this morning, we're continuing in our series called The Name, and over the last, I guess, five weeks or so, we've been looking at Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. It's, uh, as we've said time and time again, it is uh, kind of ground zero, zero for a theology on God because it's one of the only places in all of Scripture where God describes himself. It's God's self-disclosure of who he is. So we've talked about the name Yahweh and the significance of Yahweh, the I amness of God, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And last week we looked at the characteristics abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We're actually going to go back in time. We're going to press pause on Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And we're going to look at and explore a little bit um, deeper what led to this moment by going to Exodus chapter 33. Because there's this encounter that Moses has with God that leads to this, this self-disclosure from God of himself to Moses, to us today that's really important. And there's a key word in this passage of Scripture that I want to focus on this morning. So let's look at Exodus 33, verses 18 through 20. It says, Moses said to God, he's speaking to God, please show me your glory. Everyone say glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you, the Lord, or Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will, be, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Uh, the theologian Dallas Willard had this to say. He said, often our familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, that we become so familiar maybe with ideas or concepts or specifically with words that we think we know what they truly mean, and because we become, become so familiar with their use in our services or their use when we read them in the scripture, that it actually breeds unfamiliarity. And I think one of those words, the word I want to explore today is this word, glory. Now, depending on your upbringing, depending on whether or not you were raised in church or maybe you were raised in a secular home, the word glory could carry many different meanings uh, for you. Now, I grew up in the South, and I'm so lucky today to have some of my friends, uh, the Enans. Would you guys raise your hand? They are from Austin, Texas. They have known me since I was very little. They actually visited with us last year. So after church, if you want all the dirt on me going back to when I was 12 years old, they're the people to ask. They probably have plenty of it. But I grew up in a church where the word glory, often if our pastor would say something that it just excited everyone, they would say glory or they would say amen. And I don't think they really knew what glory meant, but it was kind of one of those amen words that got everybody excited. That was one use of the word glory. I went on Twitter last night and just typed in the word glory to see what some of the top search were. It was interesting. The first one that came up said, I just witnessed a glorious, no joke, WWE wrestling match. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting to see, but I saw it, and that was the first thing. Then there were just so many uh, posts about glorious meals that they had eaten that day, and it was interesting to see how glory was used to describe sports or food or a movie or a relationship that they were in. This word glory has kind of lost all of its meaning in our current Context. So today, a brief history of glory. Let's look at glory, explore what this word means and maybe the implications that it has for our life today. The word glory in the ancient Hebrew text is the word kavod. Everyone say kavod. 
kavod, and in a literal sense, it means weighty or heavy. It was a business term that was used to describe weights and measures. So when you would come in the marketplace, depending on your kavod, the weight or the heaviness of whatever item maybe that you were trying to exchange or sell, that's how that word was used, as weighty or heavy. If a wealthy person came into town and their caravan came in with them and they brought in all of their wealth, all of their treasures, they were spoken of as a person who was loaded down with Kavod, because they were weighty, because they were heavy. Think about Christmas as a kid. As the month of December went on and the, the list or the, the presents grew under the tree bigger and bigger, more and more each day, if you were like me, you would go and dig under the tree trying to find the most covodious present, the biggest, heaviest present, and that would get you really excited as Christmas Day Drew near. So, in a literal basic sense, the word kavod means heaviness or weight. We see this in scripture. There's this old ancient Israelite priest named Eli. And in the book of 1 Samuel, Eli, he's an old man. He falls out of a chair, he breaks his neck, and he dies. But look why he dies. As soon as he mentioned, this is Eli, the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old. So he was old, his bones were brittle, and he had kavod, or your Bible may say he had glory. He had literally weight or heaviness. He was a big dude, and that contributed to the fall and the breaking of the neck. So we see a literal translation here. Glory, in the English sense, wouldn't really do this verse justice, wouldn't really um, describe what had happened and may cause some confusion if we don't understand it. In English, we use this word um, uh, heavy in, in a literal sense. Like we may describe a rock or a giant boulder as being heavy, but we also use the word heavy, like kavod here, heavy, in a metaphorical sense as well. If you have a conversation with someone and they deliver to you some bad news, maybe about their health, or you watch the news any day of the week, you're often greeted with some bad news every day. And we may describe those uh, moments with a friend or moments watching the news when we hear something awful that's happened in our world as heavy moments. You say, wow, that news is really heavy, and it may lead you to a, having a, what we would describe as a heavy heart. So we use it in a literal sense, but we also use the word heavy in a metaphorical sense. And scripture uses this word kavod in not only a literal sense like we saw with Eli, but also in a metaphorical sense as well. And when it uses this word metaphorically, it's describing someone's or something's importance, its reputation, or its honor. Uh, in the book of Psalms, David is fleeing from his son, Absalom, because Absalom has kind of created a coup to overthrow and to assassinate his father. And in Psalm chapter, eight, or Psalm chapter 7, David has fleed uh, from his own castle, and he is off, and he's away, and he's pouring his heart out before God. And he said, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my kavod in the dust, lay my glory in the dust. So for David, the thing that made him significant in a metaphorical sense, the thing that made him important, his status in this nation of Israel, he had lost because his son had, had run in and kind of overthrown him and planned to assassinate him. And so he said, all of those things that made me important, they, they've been laid in the dust. They've been smeared in the mud by my son Absalom. 
So we see it literally, we see it metaphorically, we also see it in a physical sense throughout Scripture. Physically, when this word kavod is used, it's, it's a manifestation, I guess, of one's importance. Uh, when it comes to people physically, the manifestation of one's importance in terms in describing people, it often describes their wealth or their possessions, kind of like we said earlier. We see it in, uh, in King Hezekiah in Second Chronicles. He's described as being someone with immense wealth and immense kavod or immense glory because of his wealth and because of his possessions. But when we think about God's kavod in a physical sense, the manifestation of God's importance, we think about that and we recognize that and we see that in relation to his creation and to the created world in you and in me and in this place we call home, our earth, or in our universe. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens, the creation, the cosmos, the universe declare, proclaim, speak to the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens are the kavod of God, the physical manifestation of his importance. Now, say you met me in 1995 or 1996, a 15, 16-year-old John. I would have invited you into, maybe if we became friends, my, into my room. And in there, you would have found my walls littered with uh, all kinds of posters. So you walk in my room, the majority, I'd say 80% of the posters in my, wall, in my room were Beatles. I love the Beatles. So there were Beatles posters everywhere. There were a few Tiger Woods posters back then, some Texas Longhorn football posters, maybe a Nirvana or Dave Matthews poster here or there, and you would have seen all of these posters around my room, and then I would have showed you my collection of CDs and cassettes, because I lived at that kind of transition period. We were transitioning from cassettes to CDs, and we would have gone through there, and again, like 80% of what I own would have been Beatles CDs, and there would have been a Weezer CD in there. You would have seen some Nirvana, you know, like I said, Dave Matthews, all the good stuff, the good music back in the day when we had good music in the 90s. You would have seen that. And I would have showed you some of my trophies around the room. And essentially what I'm doing and bringing you into my lair and showing you everything that I had is I was showing you the 15-year-old John's kavod. Say, welcome, take in all of my glorious kavod. The thing that I thought was all mine and made me, me, and showed significance, importance, or it showed what I actually saw or viewed in the world as significant and important. That was my kavod. The kavod of God, like we said, is his created universe, the created world. Look at these pictures from the Hubble telescope. These are pictures that have been captured over the last quarter century from the Hubble telescope. Go to the next one. And they look like they look fake almost. They look like they were CGI. Go to the next one there. I don't know about you, when you see that, when I see that, when I see these images come back from space, there's something in me and maybe something in us, something in you that kind of pauses. That either kind of gasps audibly or kind of internally. You feel something at at a deep level because there's something big, there's something massive, far beyond what we can conceive of going on here that kind of takes our figurative breath. The heavens declare the glory, the heavens declare the weightiness of God. When I see images like this, it's kind of like a, a spiritual gravity that plants my feet in 
a figurative sense to the ground that stabilizes me, that gives me perspective on who I am and how small and insignificant I am in relation to the glory, the importance, the significance, the weightiness of our God. And it reminds us of the one who has a measurable kavod. So with that understanding, let's go back to Exodus 33 and explore that text again. Exodus 33, verse 18 through 20, it says, Moses said, please show me your kavod. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So he doesn't say, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm not going to answer your request, but I'm going to make all my goodness pass before, before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Verse 21, and the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my kavod passes by, I will place you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Some of the ancient Hebrew rabbis said that this is a euphemism from God saying, you shall see where I just was. Not where I am, but where I just was. God's saying, Moses, you you think you can handle my glory, but you can't. No one can see my glory and see my face and live. And the best that I'm going to offer you is you can see where I just was, the place where I had just passed through. This made me think, actually, last night, I just kind of thought about this idea. And I was thinking about the universe and the fact that if you consider our sun... When we see the sun, hopefully we don't stare directly at the sun, but when we see the sun, we see the light, or we see the sun as it was 8 minutes and 20 seconds ago. It takes 8 minutes and 20 seconds for the light of the sun to reach the earth. So if we could see the sun without damaging our eyes, we wouldn't see it as it is right now. We would see it as it was 8 minutes and 20 seconds ago. The sun, the center of our solar system, the, the most massive thing in our solar system, the thing that gives life and energy to us and to our entire solar system, we can't see it as it is, but we can see it as it was eight minutes and 20 seconds ago. And this made me think about God. I think this gives us a slight glimpse of who God is. God, in his creation, has kind of imbued some of his glory in that way so to give us an idea of like, understanding this thing that's so massive and powerful in our universe. It pales in comparison to the glory of our creator, God, and our king. Now we can watch the video clip. <laughs> Check this out. Where are we in this picture? See that trail? Where are we in this picture? See that trailing outer arm? That's where we live. About 30,000 light years from the center, the Milky Way galaxy is the next line of our cosmic address. We're now 100,000 light years from home. It would take light, the fastest thing there is, 100,000 years to reach us from Earth. This is the Great Spiral in Andromeda, the galaxy next door. We call our two giant galaxies and a smattering of smaller ones the local group. Can't even find our home galaxy from out here. It's just one of thousands. 
in the Virgo supercluster. On this scale, all the objects we see, including the tiniest dots, are galaxies. Each galaxy contains billions of suns and countless worlds. Yet, the entire Virgo supercluster itself forms but a tiny part of our universe. This is the cosmos on the grandest scale we know, a network of a hundred billion galaxies. It's the last line of our cosmic address, for now. Where are we in this? All right, we don't need to watch it a third time, but <laughs> we're good. Does that blow your mind? That is, in, yes, thank you. My wife says yes. Um, maybe everybody else, they get this. But for me, at least, my mind can't fathom the size of our cosmos when we consider it that way. He says that's the end of our observable universe, meaning that everything beyond that point, there hasn't been enough time since the creation of the universe, since the creation of cosmos, for its light to reach us today. Not enough time has passed for us to see the rest of what's out there. So our mind is blown away. Our minds kind of, at least mine does, I, I find myself in awe of God's creation. The heavens declare the glory, the kavod, the weightiness of our God. So we see his kavod, we see the weightiness of our God in, in a grand scale when we consider the universe, but we also see it in a small scale, at least I do, in my day-to-day life. Those moments when you think something else is happening here. Something big is happening here. One of the moments in my life that I look back to and I say this was a moment of significance, of weight, was in 2001. Uh, my now wife came to me and said, hey, all of my friends we've been dating for a few months at this point said, we need, to, we need to have a DTR. And I said, that sounds cool. What's a DTR? And she said, we need to define the relationship. I said, maybe we should get a hamburger instead. Let's go ahead and do that. <laughs> said, no, we need to define our relationship. Where do we stand with one another? And so we DTR'd. We engaged in this conversation, began to define our relationship. And we are where we are today as husband and wife, maybe because of that moment, because of that conversation. That was a moment filled, filled with weight, with kavod. I think about December 2014. My grandfather had just returned from a trip to Europe on the 70-year anniversary of the world, uh, beginning of World War II. 70 years later, he went back and he retraced his steps through the European front of the war, uh, visiting sites where he had um, encountered battles and just different significant moments along the way. In December of 2014, I got to go to my granddad's house, just me and my grandfather, and sit with him for 10 hours and listen to him tell about what it was like to land on the beaches of Normandy in 1944 to fight his way through Belgium for his troops to stumble upon the Nordhausen concentration camp and liberate the thousands of inmates that were in the Nordhausen concentration camp and find the thousands and thousands and thousands of dead bodies fighting their way all the way to Germany. And I sat there for 10 hours and listened to my grandfather recall these stories, and that was a moment that was heavy, that was weighty, where I figured something was going on here. I left that moment transformed in a sense, seeing my grandfather in a completely new light, uh, seeing a responsibility that I had as a father to carry on his legacy as one of his grandchildren in a new way. That moment was filled with kavod. Isaiah 6.3 says, And one called to another, these are the angels, as Isaiah is given this image of heaven and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of 
his glory. So not only is our cosmos, is our universe filled with the glory of God, but the whole earth, the day-to-day moments, the everyday conversations that maybe we take for granted are filled with the kavod of God. Now, what set this ancient um, Hebrew God apart, the God that we call Yahweh, apart from the other gods, was not simply that he just had kavod, that he was a glorious divine being, but it was what he did with that, with that kavod. What set him apart from the other gods, the pagan gods that were worshipped in that day, was what he had done with his kavod. This was a brand new, fresh, provocative idea in the ancient world. And the psalmist captures this idea in Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your kavod above the heavens. So he's declaring the greatness of God, and he says, You have set your kavod, your glory, your weight, your importance, your significance above the heaven. The thing that's above all of it is the glory of God. The weight of God holds all of this together. That massive universe that we saw a minute ago, it is cloaked in the glory of God. It's like that stabilizing weight or force that holds it all together. Have you seen those gravity blankets that they're marketing now? The gravity blankets that are just ridiculously expensive, but they sound kind of cool. The idea is that you find a blanket that is 10% of your body weight. So if you weigh 200 pounds, you would find a blanket that would be 20 pounds. And apparently, scientifically, the research indicates that if you lay under the weight of this blanket, that it's, it reduces stress, that it reduces anxiety, that it gives you comfort and peace underneath its weight. And I think that's kind of a picture of the glory of God is in, in the in sense of the universe is that we sit under the weight of God, the glory of God that brings us comfort, that brings us peace, and that brings us rest. So the psalmist says, you have set your kavod above the heavens. And then in verse 5, he goes on to write this. This is the thing that shifts the ancient world's understanding of what a God is and how a God, the single, the only God, chooses to relate to his creation. He says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with kavod and honor. Who is him? Him is us. He's speaking of his created people. He says, you have made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with kavod with glory, with significance, with importance, with honor. You have given us dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So for the ancient world and for us today, it's this realization that this Yahweh God chose not only to keep his kavod, his glory for himself, but he extended it to us as his creation as well. So that we live with a borrowed kavod, this kavod, this significance that we've been crowned with from the creator of the universe. How does he do this? By making us rulers. He says by putting things under our feet, that that we are called to care for this creation, called to care for one another and to manage this world that we're in. God has given us this weighty responsibility that goes all the way back to the garden And carries on until today this weighty responsibility that gives us weight, gives us significance as his people, as we do it with God and with one another. But the question is, 
What do we as his people do with this kavod, with this glory? And this is the question that caused, or the issue that caused ancient Israel and us today to continue to stumble and fall on our face time and time again. Will we use this borrowed kavod, this status as heirs and sons and daughters of the king for the glory of God, or will we get distracted and diverted in all sorts of ways and lose our focus on the thing that God has called us to? This is exactly what Jeremiah was calling Israel to recognize in Jeremiah chapter 2 as exile with the Babylonians was impending. And he said this, Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed, or the better word there, have exchanged their kavod, their glory, for that which does not profit. This word exchanged here in the text is a market term. This is something you would do when you would go into an ancient Hebrew market. You would take some goods that you have and you would exchange them for other goods in return. Maybe you had some precious stone and you could exchange it for food or for some, something else that you would need. Uh, Jeremiah is saying, Israel, what you're doing, you as God's chosen people, you have been crowned with glory. You have been crowned with importance and significance and weight and responsibility from God, but you have exchanged it. You've exchanged that glory for the thing that does not profit. The story goes on, and in Jeremiah's life, they are exiled because of their sin into Babylon, because they had traded in their glory, and they had missed out on the covenant promise of God. So they're left to wait, and we have to flip to the right to the New Testament in a verse that normally we read in December. It's kind of odd to read in July. Luke chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So God says, enough with the disobedience of my people. Obviously, Abraham couldn't fulfill the covenant, couldn't be faithful enough. Um, David couldn't do it. My people couldn't do it. So I'm going to send my son, and the angels come, and they're announcing the birth of the long-awaited Messiah for this nation of Israel that was now living under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire. And what's the first thing they say? Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. They had lost, they had exchanged their glory, but God, in the midst of their disobedience, honors his covenant with them. He sends his son who receives the glory of God, and it says through that he extends peace to his people. Extends peace to a people that had been disobedient, who deserved wrath, but as we said a few weeks ago, this God that we worship is a God who is slow to anger, abounding, overflowing with steadfast love and faithfulness. This favor rests is this glory image. Peace to those on whom his favor rests like that gravity blanket. The favor, the glory, the weight of our God rests upon us. And through that and because of that and because of our status, we can have peace. But Paul says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. Fall short of the glory of God. So in light of Psalm chapter 8 that we read a minute ago, what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? It means failing to be fully human as God created us. 
to be rulers, to give us, having given us dominion and putting everything under our feet. Falling short of the glory of God is falling short of the glory that he has passed on to us as his heirs. So we look to Jesus to see what this kavod and this humanity overlapped look like. We see that Jesus was one who was compassionate, who was full of grace, who was slow to anger, who was abounding in steadfast love and mercy, and who was faithful to the call of the Father, the mission that the Father set him on in his life. But we see with Jesus that when people encountered this Messiah, this, this chosen one who was sent, the Son of God, to his people, they always left transformed when they, when they encountered the kavod, the weight of this man and his compassion and his grace and his thirst for justice. They always left that encounter transformed by that experience. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, for us today as believers, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to the the other. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So becoming fully human as God intended, we see in Genesis chapter 1 with Adam and Eve, we see this kind of co-creators with God image in Psalm chapter 8. We see Jesus who encounters this world and, and fights against oppression, who warns Israel and warns the nations to turn from their sin, who gives himself to people who are in need. That is what the image of God is like. We see it in his son, and, they, and God calls us to live in that same way today. So a few questions as we end this morning. And the question is this, what are you weighted down by in life? When we think about this weighted down image, what are you weighted down by in life? Is it, is it grief? Is it grief because of past experiences? Is it the expectations of others, maybe a spouse, the expectations of parents or coworkers? Are you weighted down by the words of others, maybe words that are offered presently or maybe words from your childhood that still stick with you? Maybe you're weighted down by habits. Maybe you're weighted down by addictions. What are you weighted down by? We don't discount any of that. We don't discredit the power that those forces have in our life. But God calls us to be weighted down by the reality of his presence, by the reality of his glory in our lives and in our universe. And then when we find and we discover that glory, we will experience that same level of peace that the angels offered in Luke chapter 2, that we can find peace in whom his favor, on whom his favor rests. And that living under the weight of the glory of God can help us navigate those addictions or habits or grief or expectations of others as we look away from those circumstances and turn our eyes to God. But most importantly, the glory of God reminds us that we need salvation and that we need redemption. We need redemption as his people because of our exchanged glory that Jeremiah said. Redemption, the basic Webster Dictionary definition is this, the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. 
redemption, the action of regaining. The Jeremiah 2 image of exchanging the glory. For us, redemption is regaining an understanding, a regaining a glory that we have exchanged at the altar of culture. What have we exchanged our kavod for? What have we exchanged our glory for? Have we exchanged it for the approval of others, uh, for the acceptance of others? Maybe it's for status in our neighborhood or in our workplace or in our culture. Maybe we've exchanged our glory, our kavod, for a relationship, a relationship that you knew that you should never have stepped into, or maybe we're letting a relationship go a covenant relationship that God has called us to live into and honor, not seeking gospel restoration. Maybe your marriage is falling apart and you're exchanging that glorious relationship that God has set you in. You're walking away from it, not seeking gospel restoration. Don't give in to that lie. Seek God, seek restoration that can only be found through him to regain possession of our kavod, of our glory because of the love of our Father. Let's go back to Jeremiah 2 as we end. So Jeremiah 2 asks, or Jeremiah asks this question of Israel, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils, they've forsaken me. And how does he describe himself here? The fountain of living water. He says they have hewed out cisterns because of their exchanged glory, hewed out cisterns that can hold no water. God is the fountain of living water. And these people have exchanged their glory for things in culture, for relationships, uh, chasing after other gods, these things that cannot hold the living water that's offered by God. God is saying, I have come to give you life. But we, we, as a broken people, as a sinful people, as a disobedient people, are broken and life is just pouring out around us. Jesus came and he said, I want to give you life and I want to give it to you abundantly because of my abounding steadfast love. But if we exchange our glory, if we exchange our status as sons and daughters of God, Jeremiah says that we've hewed out cisterns, we've hewed out these vessels that can't hold the living water offered from God. Very interesting language when you consider Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Paul writes this in one of the most doctrinally important chapters in all of the Bible. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and what? The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Paul's quoting Exodus 33 that we just read. And then what happens? Go to the next verse. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, even though he is slow to anger, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, slow to anger, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? 
vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand to hold the glory of God and the glory that we have been crowned with, even us whom he has called, not from the Jew, not only from the Jew, but also from the Gentiles. That Paul here is reminding us of the way that we have been created, the glory that we as God's people have been crowned with, and that God wants to restore these broken vessels, and he wants to make us into vessels that are whole, that can hold his glory and hold the glory that we have been crowned with, this living water, the life abundantly that Jesus has come to offer Romans 9 contrasts Jeremiah 2, and Jeremiah 2, he's saying, Israel, you've exchanged your glory. And because of that, you're a broken vessel who can't hold the living waters of life. And he says, but not only for the Jew, Paul, in Romans 9, but also for the Gentile, that God wants to do this incredible work to make you into vessels of mercy, whole vessels of mercy that, can be, that have been prepared for glory. Wherever you are, go ahead and bow your heads. And I just leave us with this question this morning. What have you exchanged? What have you exchanged in your life? What have you sacrificed? What lie have you given into that's turned your heart away from the glory of God and turned your eyes to the supposed glory of this world? Maybe you're sitting there today and you're wondering why your life is falling apart around you. To use the image of Jeremiah 2, you feel like life is just pouring out around you and that you can't grasp hold of this abundant living water that God has to offer you. What have you exchanged that has brought you to that point? Wherever you are right now, just ask God to, uh, to reveal that sin in your life, to reveal that lie in your heart that's led you to that place. And as God does that, turn to God for redemption. Say, God, make me into a vessel of mercy. God, awaken my mind and my heart to the truth that you have created me as an heir to the throne, that you have crowned me with glory as a vessel of mercy to display your glory to a broken world. God, I pray right now that you would do the work to reveal the brokenness in our life. God, the sin that has led us to that place. God, that you would open our eyes to how glorious we truly are because of your grace. How beautiful you have made us. God, but we stand not in our own strength, not in our own merit, not in, because of anything that we have done, God, but simply because of your grace. And because of your goodness, because of your mercy and your compassion, your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So God, this morning we, we worship at the altar with humble hearts. We ask that this restorative work be real, be present in our lives today. God, make us into vessels of mercy. Restore our brokenness. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.